Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. This is uh, this is John Mark. This really hurts my calves. Yeah. <laughs> He's still taller than me, I know. <laughs> um, I'm going to pray for you and let you loose. Great. Father, I want to thank you for this man. Uh, I want to thank you for his love and devotion of you. But I also want to thank you that, um, that none of what he's done or prayed or studied um, is in any way close to what you have poured out in him. I want to thank you for the prayers and the studies. But I want to thank you, my God, that you are more committed to us um, than we could ever be to you. I want to thank you that there is a power in your word, and I want to pray uh, that you would just rest powerfully on John Mark as he rightly divides the word of truth. I want to pray that you would give us a posture of receptivity, and Spirit of God, I want to pray that you would bring change and freedom. I want to pray, God, that which I know is John Mark's prayer, that we would have a greater vision of Jesus at the end of this. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Mercy Commons. This is such a joy. Let me uh, get set up here. Um, We're going to continue our series uh, called God at Work. Uh, It's been a great series. And last week, Nick um, talked about when work can become or feel meaningless. I don't know if some of you guys related to that. There were a couple of statements that Nick made in particular that I felt were going to really set us up this morning really well. Uh, he said, work is meaningful because we are meaningful to God, um, which has to do with identity. And then he said, we need to make work less of the center of our lives, which has to do with what we treasure most. Uh, the title for this morning's message is When Work Becomes Ultimate. Um, and I want to start with a story, uh, two contrasting athletes from a really old movie called Chariots of Fire. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. Okay, uh, we've got these two characters. Harold Abrahams is one of them, and Eric Little is the other one. Uh, Harold Abrahams is this, this Jewish Brit. Uh, he's training for the 1924 Paris Olympic Games. Uh, his event is the 100-meter dash. He's incredibly fast. He's not favored to win, but he's got a really good shot. Um, Alongside of going to Cambridge University, his work in this season of his life is his running. Um, and so picture this scene. He's, he's in this room with his trainer um, an hour before the final event. He's, he's done all the other pre-sort of races to qualify for this event. And he's in this room having this exchange with this trainer. And his, his trainer's massaging his legs, getting him loose. And Abrahams says this, In one hour's time, I will be out there again. I will raise my eyes, look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? And then the other athlete, Eric Little, uh, he's a Scot, a devout follower of Jesus, uh, and eventually he wants to become a missionary. 
Uh, but the story follows his journey to the Paris Olympics as well. He's an incredibly fast runner, and he also runs the 100-meter dash. That's his event as well. Um, and in this season of his life, his work is his running. But shockingly, he has to come to a decision point because the final race, the 100-meter dash, is going to be held on a Sunday, and he has a pretty strong conviction. And he says this, God made countries. God makes kings in the rules by which they govern, and those rules say that the Sabbath is his, and I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Uh, this contrast between these two runners is our jumping in point this morning. Um, Abraham's, if I win the gold, if I'm the fastest man on the planet, then I'm significant, right? That was his posture towards his work. Abraham's identity being completely wrapped up in his performance. And then for Eric Little, the central pursuit of his life was being challenged when he had to make a decision. Do I run on the Sabbath? Do I not? Whether you're an athlete this morning, whether you're a marketplace professional, stay-at-home parent, pastor, a student, a teacher, I've talked to some of you. Some of you are, are wanting to become chefs. So what if you're a budding chef, an industrial or fashion designer? Um, maybe you're a software engineer, a counselor a nurse, a writer, a doctor, a musician. Maybe you're getting close to retirement, but you're still in work. Whatever work you're engaged in, the pull to either find your worth in what you do or to look for ultimate fulfillment in your work is just so strong. I'm going to talk a little bit about my own journey in this a bit later on. Um, I've got to be honest, when we talk about identity, so we're going to start here with identity, and then we're going to also talk about idolatry, identity and idolatry in relation to our work. We're going to start with identity. I've, I've often found it hard to really understand what identity is and how understanding it can actually help me, because I feel like we have so many identities that we carry around, right? I'm, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a son, I'm a designer, I'm a filmmaker, I'm a mercy commoner, I'm a Fullertonian. There's so many different ways in which I can talk about who I am, and they're all true at some level, right? Um, but Tim Keller describes identity as a sense of self and a sense of worth. This is really helpful for me. A sense of self meaning that character true line that is present in all of life, in your interactions with friends and your colleagues at work, that character true line that's consistent, but then also a sense of worth. Am I valuable? Am I valuable to someone? And we're going to start this morning grounding our understanding of identity in the Genesis story, in Scripture. That's one of our values here at Mercy Commons. And we want to look for, I want you guys to pay attention to that idea of worth and that sense of self as we skim through chapters 1 and 2. Here we go. Chapter 1, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, 
And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. And verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created him. As someone who grew up in the church, this Genesis text is so familiar to me that I've almost lost all sense of amazement at what we just read. I don't know if you feel that way. But think about what we just heard. If we picture the heavens and contemplate the existence of the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxies, and the universe which renders our little planet almost insignificant. Think about this. I want us to pull up uh, a couple of images here. Um, Here's an image of our little earth being dwarfed by this incredibly large sun. Let's go to that next slide. And now you see the sun here. Pretty small, isn't it? And and next to a few other stars, Pollux and Betelgeuse. Um, And if we were to put earth on here, planet earth, it's, it's probably the size of this little star right here. It's so insignificant. The earth is so insignificant. And then scripture talks about how we are but dust, right? How powerful must our God be to create a universe like this? But not only powerful, friends, the worth of our God in comparison to what he's created is so beyond estimation. That's what we're talking about, this sense of worth, right? God is worth so much we cannot estimate it. And then verse 27, mankind was made in that image, reflective of this creator God. You and I were made in the image of the almighty creator God. This is really, really good news for us this morning. If our God, who is of inestimable worth, says that created mankind is very good. What does that mean for us? It means that we are worth something. We have immense value. Let the truth of this push out any self-doubt, any self-loathing that you might have, and let these truths dispel any lies of the evil one that might be there. That you are worthless, or that you're not loved or lovable, that you're not enough, that you have to achieve your value You are of immense value, period. And notice, this is a received worth. It's not an achieved worth. You've received worth. If God is of inestimable value, then we, the pinnacle of his creation, although we are really tiny, are deeply valued. You are deeply valued. Let's continue in Genesis to look at Adam and Eve's sense of self. So we talked about sense of worth. Sense of self, Um, chapter 2, verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man from dust, from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God creates and names the first man. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
Continuing on, he gives man instruction to keep and work the garden. He brought all the beasts of the field and every bird in the heavens to see what Adam would call them. And then verse 22, then God made the woman from Adam's rib and brought her to the man. Let's pause here for a second. Notice how Adam and Eve's sense of of self is contingent upon the creator God. God creates, God forms, God gives Adam and Eve uh, the the work that they are to do in the garden to cultivate, right? Um, We don't hear their own experience of themselves or their self in the first person, right? Adam and Eve are not saying, well, this is how I experience self, but we can observe it in this narrative in relation to God. There's a point of reference from which they live. God creates the world for them to inhabit. He creates man and names him, and then he assigns Adam the role of cultivating, working the garden. Then he gave Adam the opportunity to name the animals. Then God creates and gives him a helper. If we continue on chapter three, what happens in chapter three? It's the fall, right? Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve, and what does he tempt Adam and Eve with? The serpent's lie is to tempt Adam and Eve to find their identity independently from God, to choose it for themselves, grab that apple or that fruit and choose it for themselves. John Piper says, Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It's defined in terms of what God does to us and the relationship he creates with us and the destiny he appoints for us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. So how do we take this into our contemporary context? There are two prominent ways the fall still impacts us and influences how we think about our identity today. Here's one of them. Culture encourages us to discover who we are apart from God. Don't you often hear about this? Look within yourself. Look inside. Be who you want to be. Right? This is, this is derived from inside. What a shifting target this is. I don't know about you, but one day I can feel like I'm on top of the world. I've got this. I know who I am. And then the next moment, next week, next month, who am I? I don't even know. And am I even pursuing what I was made to pursue, right? I mean, I can relate to this. That's a shifting target. What an unstable base to build our identities on. Here's the second one. Here's the second way in which the fall in Genesis still influences us. We can look to others, right? Or other entities to define us, name us even, and to give us our value. Think about this. If I join this soccer team, it's the best team in the region. If I join that team, then I'm something. I'm deriving value from this exterior group. Or if I'm a part of this elite group of thinkers, or if I go to this school, right, this elite school, then I'm something. We're looking somewhere else to derive our value. We're even looking to someone else to name us. How do I know if I have a misplaced identity? How do you know? Here's a litmus test to help you, to help us answer whether our identity is bound up in what we do. When success inflates you, look at me, look what I've done, right? Or when failure takes you out. Think about that. Think about your own life for a moment. 
Dorothy Sayers says, whenever man is the center of things, he becomes the storm center of trouble. Uh, here's the second, second uh, litmus test here. When critique rattles you, maybe your girlfriend, your husband, or your boss says something to you and it just totally devastates you. You go away and you're just, oh my gosh, I'm undone. I've experienced that before. Uh, here's another one. When your clearest or primary identity of self is in what you do for work, right? I'm a doctor or... Uh, I'm a teacher means more to me than I'm a son or daughter of God. And here's, here's the last one. When you reduce others to what they do, success or failure, I have a tendency, I can judge people by um, either their great success, I can esteem them and esteem them and just really raise them high, maybe even higher than I should, right? Or maybe look at their failure or their struggle at work and judge them by that. Maybe you have a tendency to do that. We won't see the value God sees in others unless we see ourselves truly and clearly, unless we know our identity in him. Church, imagine if we have found our identity in what God thinks of us more consistently. Um, as our primary identity, right? Day to day, moment by moment, our work would become an overflow of who we are in Christ. It would be a place of serving, of giving of ourselves, as opposed to a place where we're trying to take from it what it can't give. Imagine the freedom and comfortability you would have to put yourself forward knowing God made you unique, one of a kind, and that you have a part to play in this epic narrative that we're in. Wouldn't this be incredible? This is what we're after with an identity rooted in God. So now we're going to make a shift here. We're going to jump to idolatry. Um, and we're going to think about the worship of work. Um, I want to tell you about a turning point in my life and how scripture was the fulcrum that shifted the weight of worship in a different direction. A few years after graduating from Biola, I was working and just getting a bit restless at my job. Um, I had applied to a couple of grad schools and was hoping that somehow I would find that thing that was missing in my own heart. Um, I was sitting, though, on two rejection letters from two incredible schools, and I was, I was pretty devastated. Um, so I was like, okay, what do, what do I do now? I, I made a pivot, and I joined an ad agency in Orange County, and I thought, okay, the, the new challenge here, the new work environment, the new people, the new clients that I'll be working with, this, this is going to bring the creative fulfillment I was looking for. Uh, but it didn't. Uh, being at the agency proved in my life to be one of the most difficult seasons of my life. Madeline can attest to this. I would come home exhausted, consistently just done. I was tired. I was overwhelmed. Um, I literally hated most of the work that I was doing. I don't know if any of you can relate to that. I, I wouldn't show anyone. I wasn't like, hey, look at this work. Uh, I, it was just a difficult time. In the midst of that, we were beginning to grow our family, um, and this was a total shift and season for me as a husband. Um, I struggled. I struggled sort of understanding the, 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 the newness of it all, and, and so in the midst of work and family, I just, I was at a low point. 
I, I felt a bit hopeless. Um, no, near, no clear next step for me. Until one day at church, our church decided, hey, we're going to go through, we're going to do a book series on the book of Isaiah. This was, we were at a different church at the time. And so I was following along on my own. I wanted to keep up with where the, the pastors were leading us. And we got to the book, um, or the chapter 26, in particularly verses 7 through 9. And I totally got stuck in God's word. Here's, here's the passage, Isaiah 26, 7 through 9. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Here's what really got me. Here's where I got stuck. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of my soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. These words undid me. Um, I'd been a Christian my whole life. I grew up on the mission field. Um, I'd been following God and seeking him. Um, But as I was pursuing a career in the arts, my heart began to shift. I saw this shift happen where I began to look for my deepest fulfillment of my longings. And I I shifted it from God the creator to this This kind of work, to a kind of work, or to an agency that would sort of save me from my restlessness. When I read these verses, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. I could not relate. I couldn't relate. Yearning for, earnestly seeking, Friends, I'm curious how these verses land on you this morning. Do you earnestly seek the Lord? When you lay your head down at bed at night, when you wake up in the morning, are you looking to be with the creator of the universe? And this is not meant to invoke any shame. This is about honest reflection. Do you yearn for the Lord at a soul level? Deuteronomy 6, God describes the kind of heart orientation that leads to a thriving relationship with him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Stop and think about that. All is an absolute term. We, don't, we try not to use absolute terms in our family. But this is an absolute term in the positive sense. Everything about you, all of you, Jesus in the gospel says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your treasure could be your work. Your treasure could be money. My treasure could be my family, my children. Creative expression through music and the arts or whatever. Your dream job. The approval of a peer group. You see, idolatry is this exchange. In Romans, it talks about they exchange the glory of God for something else. That's what idolatry is, exchanging it. Something else, something less becomes ultimate in place of God. Spurgeon continues, and alas, I fear the idols are as many as the trees of the field. Lord, remove them far from us. Man, I relate to that. Lord, remove them far from me, from us. Friends, in my story, I was not only making the quality of my work 
the measure of my worth. That's identity. But I had also exchanged an ultimate relationship with the creator of the heavens and the earth for a dream of fulfillment in a certain kind of work. That's idolatry. I was wrestling with both in my life. I find what the reformer John Calvin says to be so true. The human heart is an idol factory. My heart is an idol factory. Now, for some of you, your place of work might be a blessing. It might be a true source of encouragement for you. Uh, It may be a place of thriving, even of worship. Praise God. That's incredible. You may not love your work in an ultimate sense. Um, You may not look for your identity in what you do. But I have this hunch that you've got at least something like this in your life. Something like this. A counterfeit God, Tim Keller calls it. Uh, An alternate pseudo-salvation. Anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life, or your identity. Is there something, something else that has that place in your life this morning? Mercy Commons. Uh, To continue my story, God took me through a wonderfully gracious season of revealing my own heart. The true affections of my own heart. Where were they placed? God helped me in that. In my place of despair, my hopelessness, God and his great love pursued me. Isn't that the story? God pursues us first. He pursued me. He was calling me to come. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. In pre-service prayer this morning, we talked about God filling us up, right? Filling up our thirsty souls. I was experiencing that. And I was thirsty. I was thirsty for more than what this world can offer. And the more I saw the misdirection of my worship, the more I loved the grace and mercy and the life of Christ that was laid down for me. The more I saw examples of people in Scripture radically directed towards God, the more I longed to make him the center of my own life. His word coming alive in me. And I found the psalmist was right that God satisfies the longing soul. It's true, church. He satisfies us. And he fills it with good things. Psalm 107, 9. Psalm 63. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Beholding. Beholding. Looking at his power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you, it says. What? His love better than life? Yes. I began to experience the abundant life promised in John 10. Not an easy life. Life has been difficult. We've had some really difficult seasons as of late. But abundance, there's abundance in the midst of the journey. The food that satisfies your hunger, my hunger. Friends, this was the start of a journey, not an arrival at a destination. My work has changed quite a bit since this period of my life. And I still find that my heart is still pulled like a magnet to make work an ultimate thing. I thought I was done with this. Uh, To let the quality of my work determine the measure of my worth. This morning, church, I wonder if God's Spirit is lovingly pursuing you. 
lovingly pursuing you? Is there a sense in which you've tied your worth to your performance or to someone's validation of you this morning? Is there a sense in which you've exchanged the glory of God for something less? And maybe you're here this morning and you're not quite sure about this Jesus that we're talking about, um, this creator. And, and I want to take us back to those, those runners that we started with this morning. Abraham's was looking for running to give him his sense of worth, right? And let's listen to how this played out in his life. This is what he says. I've known the fear of losing, but now I'm almost too frightened to win. I'm 24 and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. Isn't this what happens when we chase something other than God, right? We just keep chasing. We're not content. I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. We're all looking to fill that void in our hearts and have that need to belong, to matter, to find fulfillment. But like Abraham's, we can be chasing that something, but we'll never find it unless we find the one who can ultimately and fully satisfy us. We were, we were made with hearts to only be satisfied by the eternal creator. Nothing in this world will satisfy us. Nothing And I ask this morning that if you don't know Jesus, would you consider Jesus again, either for the first time, maybe again, consider him. Um, Find me after the service or find one of our pastors and we would love to introduce you to him. Uh, For the rest of us, as we close, I want to leave you with a charge that'll take us into the week. How do we actually pursue an unshakable identity grounded in God's love for us? How do we turn the affections of our hearts toward God and experience deep and true satisfaction in him? Here are three things. When the spirit lovingly reveals to you the state of your heart, ask him for help. Ask him to change your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh, as scripture says. Ask him for humility like that of King David when he wrote Psalm 51, right after he had sinned with Bathsheba. This is what he says. This is the message version. You're the one I violated, God, and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of my evil. You have all the facts before you. Whatever you decide about me is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time. Enter me, then conceive a new, true life. Here's the second one. Cling to contingency. Embrace it in light of the creator God. We are contingent. You and I are contingent upon him. We have a point of reference for our lives. We're not just figuring it out on our own. Resist the pull of our culture that wants you to believe that you exist for yourself or unto yourself. Your identity is received. It's received. It's not achieved. You don't achieve it. You need someone to name you. You don't name yourself. Just like Adam, the first man, was named. You're given a name this morning. Only Jesus should be the one who names you. Your contingency upon his love means you can live with an identity that cannot be shaken. Then the third thing here. Behold and marvel at your God, Mercy Commons. Your king, your shepherd, your father... Spend time getting to know him in his word. Talk to him in prayer. Make him the central pursuit of your life. 
Make him your treasure. He's the well from which you drink and never thirst again. His love is of the kind that will never run out. He's the one who satisfies your starving soul. He's the one who believes in you like no one else. After all, he thought you up. He dreamt about you before he founded the earth, before he founded the universe. He was thinking of creating you. When you look at his indescribable glory and worthiness, he transforms you. That's, that's what the disciplines actually do, right? When we say go to him in prayer, or go to him in the word, going to, actually reading the word doesn't transform you. It's beholding him in his word. And when we look at him, he transforms us, right? When we see him for who he is, his glory transforms us. church. Look at him. Behold him. Band, you can come up now. I want to close with another quote from Spurgeon this morning. Here we go. Nothing separates a man from his sin like a sense of the love and the sufferings of Jesus. Redeeming grace and dying love, these ring the death knells of our lusts and idols. How do we conquer our idols? His redeeming grace, his love. Soon as faith the Lord can see bleeding on a cross for me, quick, my idols all depart, Jesus gets and fills my heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the the great privilege of gathering together, sons and daughters created in the image of God. We are but dust, but we are mightily and greatly loved by you and valued by you this morning. Lord, forgive us when we misplace our identity in something less and something other than you. Lord, forgive us when we have made something else ultimate, when only you can fill that place in our hearts. Lord God, we want to step out of this room today and into our week with victory. Lord, we know that in Christ, we are victorious. We know that the light chases out darkness, that you, Lord, are victory. And so, Father, this morning, we claim your victory in these areas of our weakness, and we trust that you will grow us, you will lead us, and you will fill us where we lack and where we are longing. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. What we're going to do is come to the altar. Um, John Mark, thank you so much for giving us this massive, fresh picture of the glory and grace of Jesus. One of the, one of the cool things is that we don't pursue Jesus. He pursues us. We respond to his pursuit of us. We place ourselves in a position to receive the grace and mercy of God. And that's what this table is about. Um, We didn't earn this. We go to the table and pick up elements that have literally changed our past, present, and future. So I want to invite you to do that. If you're a Christ follower this morning, if you've responded to the grace and mercy of God, 
I want to invite you. There are two tables over there. There's wine at the front table. I want to invite you to go and get the elements, come back to your seat, and then we'll, we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Um, while uh, John Mark was, uh, was sharing and read from uh, Psalm 51, the, the, the phrase, I've been out of step with you for a long time, just kind of just hit me. And I just feel like um, you know, Nick was talking about the communion on which we've received. Uh, it's a means of grace. Grace is available for us all the time, but we put ourselves in, in positions to access grace. The gathering together is a means of grace. Everything we're doing this morning is a means of grace. Receiving prayer is a means of grace. And I just feel like um, there's going to be people to my left, to your right, that are available to pray for you. And in particular, if you feel like, man, it's just like I've been out of step for a long time. It's like the dance that God has invited you into. He wants to dance with you in step, you know. Uh, or another analogy, if you don't like dancing, engines that are misfiring, right? Like what it, when an engine misfires, it needs tuned to actually fire again on all cylinders and to experience the life that it's intended to run, the dance that you're intended to dance. And I just feel like there's a unique opportunity this morning, if that that feels like that's for you uh, in any way, with regard to your work or other things that you've been you've been holding on to, you can get adjusted this morning. The Holy Spirit is here and He's present and wanting to offer that, uh, wanting to offer that to you. So the band is going to continue to play. Um, oh, Grace, did you have something? Oh. Come on, Grace. <coughs> Grace, Grace also has something. Grace, yeah. <laughs> um, while John Mark was preaching, I don't remember at what point, but it just brought to mind this memory that has stuck with me for 10 years. My first semester in the hospital as a nursing student, and, um, and this guy wasn't even my patient. He's probably long gone now, but he had had a stroke, I think, from what I'm remembering, and was just, like, in society's eyes, very worthless. Like, if you looked at his identity, he had no worth. He had, um, he had no family. He had no support. He was depressed. I don't think he was taking care of himself at home. Um, and he just wanted to die. Like, I think he was saying, I, I want to die. And I think I had, like, a two-minute interaction with him. And I remember God just, like, I was looking at him, and he was just saying, like, this man has worth. And I thought of that because I know that, especially when John Mark was talking about all the things that we place our identity in, is there's so many societal um think things we mark ourselves by do we have friends do we have family do we have success do we have any of these things and um and just for you to know that your identity was already placed on you um and so if you feel like that man or even close to that i would love to pray for you too thanks grace grace is going to be over here some other folks to my left to your right are going to be available to pray um i'm going to pray for us generally the band is going to continue we're going to dismiss after I pray and we're, we hang out around the back, we'd love to get an opportunity to, to uh, say hello, to, to speak. Um, well, Father, I, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for uh, songs and uh, 
music and the word of God. Lord, thank you for each person here this morning that has helped to pull uh, this all together. We receive all of it as a gift, and we thank you that you are for us, that you have formed us, that you've given us our identity, that you have sent your son to remind us of our great worth, and that you have sent your spirit now to be available to each one of us, to lead us into all truth and to shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. So Lord, I pray for this people this week that the love of God would be shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit and that you would lead us into all truth, that we would be grounded in who you say we are. In Jesus' name, the church said. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.